0: Baby, hey, hey, beautiful girl, sing. Hey, baby, hey, 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 hey,
1: hey, 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 hey beautiful girl, sing. Hey, being an African woman is an extreme sport, and then when you live in a city like Johannesburg and in a country like South Africa, where the culture of violence against women is incredibly high, you know, I don't want to be I don't want to be Afro pessimistic, but I have to tell the truth, you know. And I tend to live with hope rather than despair. But just to give you the statistics, 52% of women who are murdered in South Africa are murdered by their intimate partners. Okay, so our, our rates of gender-based violence are really, really high. Um, I, I lost my own sister to domestic violence. You know, I, I don't know. Any anyone who hasn't been touched by it. I, I'm a survivor of domestic violence myself. So there's that, that it, you know, we're not safe in our own homes, but we're also not safe in public spaces because of patriarchal attitudes and violent attitudes towards women. And, and And I think this is something that women throughout the world experience.
2: I guess for me, it's important not to think of Johannesburg or South Africa as extremely exceptional. We have particular problems, but we're also part of the world. And the larger picture is a picture of a crisis of authority in many countries around political leadership and a crisis of faith in democracy. And there's a a larger global picture of an environment crisis. And, you know, within those bigger global um, uh, dilemmas, we are grappling with quite fundamental social problems, like how to give people a house, how to make sure that people can feed themselves and their families. So how that plays out, I honestly don't know. I think, it's, I think you know, we live in a kind of entangled world and I suppose to some extent our success will depend on what happens around us and what happens on the rest of the continent.
3: Should art reflect history, culture and society? And how do cities inspire art? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to this Soundscape special. I'm Susan Cahill and tonight I'm coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa, a city built on gold. Well, next Wednesday, the 8th of May, South Africans will vote in their sixth general election since the end of the apartheid system. The country's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, has spoken out against a vicious cycle of poverty in South Africa and has called for a radical economic transformation of the country, building a more inclusive and collective economy for all. Well, with more than half the population of South Africa living below the poverty line and over 50% of South Africans below the age of 35 unemployed, It is clear that the African National Congress, the ANC, the political leadership of South Africa, have not delivered upon its historic promise to lift millions of black South Africans out of extreme poverty and to eradicate unemployment and inequality. Well, tonight on Soundscapes, we're going to meet with four South African writers, poets and artists to hear how the country is building for a better future. First up, it's Slam poet, writer and activist, Tabiso Mohari.
4: My name is Tabiso Mohari. I'm also known as Afura Khan. I'm a poet, uh, I'm a creative writer, I'm an arts uh, projects manager, I'm a creative entrepreneur. I'm a man who has many hats, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, Yeah, and um, I've got... uh, a book out called uh, The Broken Man Chair Book. Um, and I've been sparking conversations with men over the last two years about it. Um, yeah, and I'd like to share maybe one from it. Let's start with Morning Flowers. As uh, a poem I wrote for my city, Johannesburg, uh, born, raised here, uh, and I still love it here with all its problems. Morning Flowers. Nothing grows here except skyscrapers, neon flowers that rise and wither with the daily sun, watered by acid rain pain and human strain, with night, day and season all but the same. Basement roots, elevator stems, petals are paper, a garden of buildings where the harvest is not for everyone. Welcome to Joe Hasselberg.
3: That's a great one, Joe Hasselberg. Tabitha, so you've lived in the city all your life and you said there are some challenges at play. Um, what's daily life like? we worth sitting in a very uh, busy suburb called Melville. Uh, there's lots of coming and going and things seem uh, relatively calm. But there are problems, aren't there?
4: I mean, Johannesburg is a its a city of many worlds, sort of collapsed into one. You know, if you take the sort of um, historic Johannesburg, um, it was a city where after five o'clock, no black people were allowed in the city, you know. Um, and that was during apartheid. And then now, post-apartheid, you've got an influx of uh, black people into the city, young black people, middle class, living in the city, working around the city. We've also had, um, you know, a massive movement of um, other African um, um, citizens moving into Johannesburg as well also trying to find their own space so it's it's metropolitan it's eclectic um, it's uh, afropolitan if you want to call it that you know it's a mixture of the many identities that that now we find that we sort of look at and say this is African Um, it's a city that is Old but also trying to rebuild itself. Um, it's a city that has a lot of old infrastructure that's falling apart, but at the same time, juxtaposed with a lot of new developments that are coming up as well. Um, it's a university city, you know, we've got two major universities in here. Um, it is the capital, or at least the financial capital, of South Africa. So on a daily basis, you know, you've got everything between a million black people using public transport, interchanging through the city. Um, you have got big business happening in the city, banks, mining, and so forth. And you've got your middle class, like us creatives, who are trying to find inspiration in the city, trying to find work, trying to create and also um, give back into the city as well. You know, So it's a vibrant city, but also a city of many contradictions. Um, lots of challenges, rich and poor all mingled into, into the same space.
3: Is it fair to say, though, that there's two Johannesburgs, one for the rich and one for the poor? Because if you look at the spatial layout of the city and how the city's been mapped and planned, yeah. there are certain areas and districts and townships where there are certain provisions, and then there's other suburbs yeah. uh, which seem to be thriving.
4: I think it was, you know, it's more than just the rich and the poor. I think there's rich, poor, foreign... Um, and I don't fit in, you know. Um, I think, you know, the, the rich side is clear, it's evident, and then there's the extreme poverty side, but then you also got your middle class, you know, which, on paper, they look like they're thriving, but at the back end, these are young black people who, besides what they earn, they're left to support families at home, their grandmothers, cousins, and so forth, you know, again, trying to, to patch that legacy of, of, of apartheid. So, it is a city of divisions, in a way, so you find one sector serving the other sector, the poor serving the rich, separating by street, you know, um, you've got the middle class sort of trying to balance between the rich and the poor, you know um, in the working world as a middle class you know, you're seen as, uh, uh, you know, upwardly mobile, um, educated but then when you go back into your township you've got these responsibilities that you have to you're also seen as an outsider because you live in, you know, in the suburbs and so forth, so Again, you know, as a young black person balancing those multiple worlds, we call it code switching, being able to fit in in the different spaces, you know.
3: And tell me, as a black South African poet, how important is it for you to maybe look at the different layers in society and the contradictions, as you would say, and maybe uh, tackle some of the issues around that? Presumably it's uncomfortable, but it's necessary, is it?
4: I mean, you know, there's a saying that, you know, if if art doesn't reflect society, then, you know, what's the point of art? I think... And for me, that's be the only responsibility I attach to an artist, um, to say you need to reflect the world you're living in, you need to reflect the times you're living in. Um, and I think for me as a writer, I cannot write about anything else except the life that I live, the world that I come from. So for me, living in Johannesburg, a lot of my work is influenced by that, by living in here, seeing the disparities, seeing the poverty, seeing the opportunities, you know, seeing the challenges as well, and the culture and lifestyle that Johannesburg brings. So a lot of my work whether it's looking at Johannesburg from a macro perspective as a city or even you know going right down and looking at individual characters that are influenced by the city you know um, it's very important and even historically you know um, Johannesburg I mean there's a narrative now about you know um, the black middle class um, working in it but at the same time there's also the narrative of the migrant labor system that the party government used to push so those two worlds now sort of colliding um, you know in this day and age so my work can only be influenced by my surroundings, or at least what I see. So a lot of that, a lot of the challenges, a lot of the beauty of Johannesburg um, comes through my writing.
3: Tell me, so how difficult is it to challenge issues around masculinity and gender-based violence and look at some of the uncomfortable, um, I suppose, uh, truths at play?
4: Sure. Uh, first of all, this is Africa. So patriarchy is... I mean, it's embedded into the political system. It's embedded into the religious system. It's you know, it's pretty much everywhere. Um, it is difficult because for the first time, and I mean, and I'll speak again about black men in the you know in South Africa, or at least in Southern Africa. That it's the first time where we are forced to look at our behaviour, look at. How much of it is learned or inherited, how much of it are we still perpetuating and what sort of changes need to happen, you know, so we can no longer just say, Oh well, I'm a man because, you know, in my culture I am born a boy, I'm the firstborn, therefore I'm entitled to one, two, three, four, or because my grandfather raised me like this, or my father raised me like this, therefore I can, you know, carry on with nonsense behavior. So I think you know it, that the, the, the need to ask ourselves: So, what is manhood? What is being a black man in this country? What are the expectations? What are the unfair pressures that are being put on, on you know, the concept of being a man and being uh, you know? And then also, can we reimagine ourselves as something new? So, trying to spark those conversations with, um, especially black men, is difficult.
3: And tell me, when you get up on stage and you, you, know, you um, have different, um, I suppose, uh, slam poetry festivals and different types of pop-up venues and so on all across the city, what happens when you get up on stage and you say, what does it mean to be um, a man from Johannesburg today? And you know, how are we dealing with our women and when you bring up issues around patriarchy? Like, presumably some people in the audience can get a bit um, challenged by that, do they?
4: I mean, I've, I've, I've so since I've launched the Broken Man book yeah. about a year and a half ago, and I've been having sort of these talks with yeah. men in different spaces, I've had varying responses, you know. Yeah. In some spaces, a guy has gotten up, sworn at me, and walked out and said, why are you taking women's side, you know, and yeah. so forth. Like, what about women? Women are trash too, you know. It's not just yeah. men. And I've had spaces where men have said, thank you for starting that conversation because I've felt this way, but I just was not sure whether it's something that other people are thinking or if my feelings are valid or if my thoughts are valid so I think on on a larger scale yeah. men are open to the conversation they are open to the challenge um, I think the the problem is you know it makes them uncomfortable. How do they then start processing that position and say, right, okay, why am I feeling uncomfortable? Is it because I'm still hanging on to certain ideas or thinking around this issue? That's why it's affecting me so much. Then what shift do I need to to create in myself? But I think what I've appreciated is that starting a conversation is still a very powerful thing because we don't have enough of the conversations happening in you know in, a, in an organic way so you deliberately sparking this conversation is still largely appreciated you know and and um and as much as men want to change we don't have a guide we don't have a this is the trajectory or this is the example so where we would typically look at for example political leadership to sort of set some sort of a moral and um, um, governance standard we don't have that you know you come from a place where the former president was accused of you know sexual um, um, crimes and even within the ruling party now you've got certain high profile members being accused of sexual crimes and harassment and so forth we at a national level we don't have that kind of example this is the leader this is how you behave in society these are the new ways we need to think and behave, you know, so a lot of us then find ourselves, you know, sharing answers, trying to find our own solutions
3: clearly the conversation around gender-based violence is happening uh, all across South Africa in lots of different creative ways, like yourself in terms of poetic performance, tackled through literature, tackled in books uh, and theatre and everything. But do you think there's much action around it? Because it's one thing to have the conversation, but there's two then to listen and then to act upon that conversation. And do you think the leadership are supporting that?
4: I think, you know, the, the fight will always be at two levels. I think one from a, you know, societal design and and the tools that come with that whether it's legal, whether it's educational and so forth I don't think there's enough effort and again that comes from vision where do we want to see this country in 30 years if we have a sexual violence um, problem beyond solving it you know for this year how do we transform the society so that 20, 30 years from now we don't have this issue. I don't think there's kind of that kind of vision and leadership and creative thinking happening at that level. It's almost like the government's attitude is quite responsive and defensive at the same time. So if somebody within the ruling party gets accused you know, it's they'll back a bit if it's somebody who is, let's say, a celebrity that comes out you know, they will then jump on the bandwagon and make it seem like they care about the issues, but if you to go back and look at how many uh, psychiatrists or psychologists do we have working in, in schools? None, you know um, as a young girl in a university and you get harassed, what kind of legal options do you have that are not going to want, you know, strip you of your dignity and, and you have to, you know, go through hoops and so forth, so at a national and government level there isn't that. On the Ground level, we might have ideas, but we don't have the resource to implement. So, all we can deal with is attitude change. So, we speak to other men and say, Right, why are we behaving this way? You know, how beneficial is patriarchy to us as a system? You know, as a system that we inherited, you know, in 2019, is it still beneficial for you to be the head of the home with all of those pressures and take them on? And, you know what I mean? Don't you need to? So, that's all we can do as artists, um, as young people. is at least work on the mind shift and hope that we start behaving better, that our outlook is a little bit more informed.
3: When we were talking earlier, you mentioned the challenges of water and water policies within the city of Johannesburg and how some parts of the city don't have um, access to water and then others do. Can you tell me a bit about that?
4: I think to view a lot of the problems in Johannesburg is that you had a city that was built for a certain number of people built for white people, um, control number, therefore all the infrastructure works for all of these people. And then when apartheid ends, there isn't a massive investment in growing the city or growing the infrastructure. Now you've got an influx of people coming into the city. We can live in the city for the first time. We can start businesses. So the kind of burden that has been put on the existing infrastructure is overwhelming. You know, So it's going to break down. And if you don't have a direct sort of responsive investment into the infrastructure, so then now we end up with this massive disparity where certain townships don't have water. In the city as well, you find certain sections have water, others don't have water. Again, it becomes sort of the poor and the rich game, you know, where the rich people can speak out, they can take the city to court, they can, you know, institute all sorts of actions, they will get their services. But in terms of the poor people, besides, taking to the street and protesting, there's very little service delivery that happens.
3: And how big a problem is public transport? Because, you know, going around for the last few days, a lot of people are going around in cars, or oh, there's taxis and there's different minivans and so on. But there doesn't seem to be, you know, it's kind of almost a contradiction in terms that Johannesburg is this very sophisticated city, you've got big businesses, international companies and so on. But then on another level, access to transport in certain districts seems to be very pokey. Right,
4: And that's why an Uber can come in and, uh, and you know, just change the game. I think the only forms of real public transport, as in transport system owned by the government, is the metro rail system and it's the bus system. You know what I mean? In terms of the taxis or the minibuses, that's actually private business. Those are things, um, um, uh, transport system owned by people, out of a need to service their own yeah. people, but they're not really public transport. But because the government has not brought any counter plans taxis are pretty much the lifeblood of, of mobility in this country you know, they're not safe um, they're not necessarily affordable but they are affordable in, in, in comparison but for an everyday person to be able to do, you know, commute two, three times just to get to work and back you know, it's a, it's, it's a massive cost you know? so, so again we have transport for the poor and transport for the rich
3: And tell me, South Africa is looking at new elections coming on stream and one of the big issues in the city is security and safety, safety of women particularly. Do you think things will improve on that level?
4: The buildings in Johannesburg have got more security and are safer than any woman walking through the street. I think, you know, which is also just ridiculous. You know, uh, your mining companies, your banks will invest a lot in securing their buildings, but walking through Johannesburg as a woman is, is dangerous. You know, I think, again, it speaks back to the culture of the city you know who is in charge of the city Um, have we planned for people in the city are we planning for people or for business and it seems like there's there's more priority towards business again the money game comes in you know Um, in South Africa we've got a massive culture um, of femicide of uh, violence against women again it's one attitude problem it's um, um, resources it's you know it's, it's things we've inherited so without again a plan from government what do you do so Chinatown is strange. It's, a, it's supposed to be a world-class city, but it's not like Berlin or London, where you can get on a bicycle and, 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 and ride around. That happens, but it happens in the suburbs, reserved for rich people who can hire private security to secure the area. Which again is another complex. Because if you look at the private security, it's black people who are protecting white people. You know, so because they can afford it. So, a person who leave somewhere too to go work in Santin, to go guard a family or a building the whole night, but they're leaving their family vulnerable, they're leaving their wife, their daughter vulnerable to walk around the streets of Soweto and probably get raped while they're protecting another family. So it's it's that complex, you know what I mean? Um, so who needs to do what? I, I think it starts with, with a plan. I think it starts at government level, on the ground, As men, we are checking each other. We can do CPFs, like community patrols. You know, there are small-scale interventions that are happening, especially around the safety of women. Um, Attitude changes, a lot more awareness, um, calling each other out as well, you know, um, uh, supporting women who are coming out and saying, look, this is what I'm going through, challenging corporates. If we know a certain person works for a specific corporate and, you know, there's this allegation against them, we challenge those corporates, get involved and so forth. You know, but again, if we call out somebody and... um, They get arrested and they get a thousand rand bail and they're out on the street tomorrow. You know, what long term impact can that do? So, as much as we can do small efforts, we need the government as well to come to on on their side. Homeless,
0: homeless, one night sleeping on a midnight Homeless, we homeless. We're moonlight sleeping on a midnight And we are homeless, we are homeless. We're sleeping on a midnight And we are homeless, homeless, homeless. sleeping on a midnight. Just you
5: Casey, I I am
0: Casey, I am Casey, I I am Casey, I am Casey, I I am I am I am I am
3: and that was slam poet, activist and writer, So Mahari. Well, earlier this year, South African novelist Fiona Melrose published her second novel, Johannesburg, with Crosscare, the Little Brown Book Group. I met up with Fiona in her house in downtown Johannesburg and asked her about the book.
5: Hello, I'm Fiona Melrose. I'm the author of two books, Midwinter and Johannesburg, published by Corsair. And I'm sitting with Susan in my living room And I'm going to read from the middle of my book, Johannesburg, where my character Jin is thinking about Johannesburg, what it means to her, and how she finds the city on her return. Johannesburg was a relentless rush to rebirth and rebuild, so that in the end it was all built on a pit of bones. Each year another layer was added. Other people's lives, their great and pitiful histories, were piled deep beneath the incandescence of commerce. Why was anyone surprised? The entire city was meant to be a temporary shelter for those in search of gold. Very little had changed. Its streets, buildings, lives, all had a permanence of that tent settlement. Their ropes were always overstretched and frayed in the heat of the sun and softened anew by each afternoon storm. What lay beneath those tents was the promise of gold, but in truth it was mostly granite and dust. Even tonight, the forty people who would come to her mother's party, what of them? none of them would change or move or ever dare to whisper is this it.
3: Really well done on the book uh, Fiona Johannesburg. It's a very interesting read. It's very funny in parts, very dark in other parts but one of the most interesting aspects of the book is a general feeling of unease on the streets of Johannesburg. So can we start off by, um, could you give me a description of um, the city itself and what the city means to you?
5: I always say that Johannesburg is, my relationship with Johannesburg is one of the most fraught and complicated of my life. Mm -hmm. It's a city that is easy to love. I think people who come here want to come again. But at the same time, it does have an edge to it. It does have an unease to it. And I think a lot of that obviously comes out of its long history, the apartheid history. And a sense that things are not as far along as they should be for most of the population.
3: Now, we're sitting in your house today um, um, in one of the suburbs of Johannesburg, and you were joking earlier that you said, you know, we got lots of space here and greenery and everything, but we also get high gates and barbed wire. Can you talk to me about the security situation? Because you said to me uh, something about the kind of, I suppose, the narrative of fear that penetrates conversations, social groups and I suppose culture here in the city.
5: I think there's a lot of it is a narrative. And I think it does come from somewhere in the sense that there is an extraordinarily high crime rate. I think I recently read some statistics that put Johannesburg along with Afghanistan in terms of murders per 100,000 in the population, which equates you with a war zone, really, which is, is extraordinary. Um, because it is still a place where people live and work. It's a place where people have hopes to raise their children, want to send them to school, want to have a normal life. Mm. And that is across economic groups. And I think there is also a slight perception that it's only wealthy South Africans who are victim to crime when it's simply not true. Mm. Um, it's, it's something that, that pervades society. But at the same time, I also think... People buy into the narrative and it becomes self-fulfilling in a way. And it's about navigating the difference between perceived fear, which is, of course, the thing that wakes you at three in the morning, and the reality yeah. and, and the statistics that back that up and trying to navigate that.
3: You wrote um, Johannesburg uh, just after you moved to the city and um, you sketch out some very uncomfortable backstories in relation to um, domestic workers in the city who have come from Zimbabwe and further afield who are working and then you also have a range of different people who are either displaced or homeless. And you um, contrast this against great wealth and great privilege. Some people would see that as a very, I suppose, uh, one-sided view of the city. What would you say to that?
5: I would say it might be one-sided, And it may be one truth, but it's still a truth. And South Africa has one of the highest wealth disparity gaps in the world, comparable to Brazil. Um, And that continues to expand and be more and more true every year. I think you can't ignore the fact that there are people living in shacks and there are people three deep at traffic lights in luxury cars, four by four Porsches and, and so on, and then beggars all around those cars. You can't ignore it, no matter your perspective, there's... There's perspective, and then there's also just what's true.
3: And of course, it's a city that's built on its mining history and a whole range of different labourers who supported the mines, isn't it?
5: Absolutely. I mean, there is certainly, and certainly the left, the political left makes great capital, truthfully, Mm. that the wealth of the country is built on the, on the, the backs of poor black labour. And that is true, and it continues to be. I don't think we can deny that. So I think it's dishonest, honestly, to say... That people have their wealth and it exists in, a, in some kind of vacuum, that it isn't reliant on the millions of people who, who work very hard in very difficult conditions and also those who don't work, which is the other side. I mean, the people who may be exploited in jobs are in some ways somehow, appallingly, still doing better than those who don't.
3: What was the big question you set out to ask yourself when you began writing the book? Because you're tackling a lot of social issues and then um, set set apart from that, you're looking at a mother-daughter relationship, which is very conflictual. It makes for very um, funny reading. But it is, um, I'm sure for some readers, very, very touchy.
5: I think the question I asked um, came from a book I read many years ago. I mean, almost maybe 20 years ago um, from the Canadian political thinker, Michael Ignatieff, And he asked the question what is our obligation to the stranger at the gate? And I think I I get goosebumps even while I'm telling you that. It's a question that bothers me in all contexts. What is our obligation to the person who knocks at the gate with an open hand and asks for help? And I think we can extend that, the mother-daughter relationship, we have that obligation with familial ties, But we can expand that to our more general tribe, Mm. which is society, to our nation, and globally as well, if we think of of refugees. What is our obligation? And in a country like South Africa, I don't think you can ignore the contrast between what you have. And I come from privilege. I have education. I've had a lucky, lucky life. What is is my obligation to those who don't? And how far should you go and would you go? And I think you can also ask these questions and not know the answer. And I certainly hope that people who read the book will at least ask themselves that question.
3: And how do you think the um, current leadership in South Africa are doing in terms of looking at their obligation to serve the rich and the poor of South Africa and possibly bridge that inequality gap?
5: So I would certainly say upfront, I'm a little anxious about the novelist as, as expert mm. on a country, um, simply because I live here or have written a book. Um, I certainly don't claim to have all the answers. I think there has been a difficult eight years for the country under under the previous leader of the ANC, and I think it would be even the ANC would struggle to dispute that, and they certainly don't, well, some of them don't dispute that. Um, I think it's an, the squandering of an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I think that's eight years less mm-hmm. development for young, can eight yeah. people wait another eight years um i guess there's cautious optimism with the new leadership but the i do think there's very much a a wait and see attitude certainly amongst businesses and and investors if you want to look at that side the sort of hard capital side of things waiting for the we have elections in may and people are taking a wait and see attitude with that
6: Pere, and the man must a to seven, Because anything in life is possible. that is impossible.
0: Back pillow I'm We under pressure. I go to wanna be your lecture.
6: Just go to only
0: you're
3: And you're very welcome back to this Soundscape Special. I'm Susan Cahill, and this evening we're meeting with a range of South African writers, poets and artists to get their take on the social and economic inequalities facing the country. So, who and what is Johannesburg? And is it a city of division? Next up, it's South African writer, novelist and teacher Ivan Vladislavich. Author of Portrait with Keys, The City of Johannesburg Unlocked, published by W.W. Norton & Company. I'm Ivan Vladislavich. Uh, I'm a writer from
2: Johannesburg. Um, I actually grew up in Pretoria, which is a nearby city. but I've been living in Johannesburg for about 40 years, so for much of my life. And um, I've written novels, short stories, essays. Um, I work quite a lot with artists. And I'm particularly interested in urban questions and how people live in the city.
3: Ivan, for anyone who hasn't visited Johannesburg before, how would you describe the city? What is its urban, I suppose, character, personality or identity?
2: Well, Johannesburg um, is a mining town. Uh, It came into existence here because there was gold discovered here. So it's very much a working city. It's a new city. It's only about 130 years old. So that's very much a part of its character. Um, It's a very urban, very spread out, very um, diverse, and in some ways very harsh city. It has some very beautiful areas. It has a gentle and soft side to it, a suburban side, but it also has quite a hard, uh, gritty surface to it. It's a place that's very contradictory, that's quite conflicted, and that's quite... um, difficult to live in in some ways it's not an easy place to live but it's a rewarding place to live Um, partly because it has so many different sides to it and it makes so many demands on you and of course uh, that's the kind of place you want to live in if you're a writer it might not make for a comfortable life but it makes for an interesting writing life.
3: Presumably though um, Johannesburg's history and the history of apartheid has really shaped the um, city's fabric, and within that, where people are living, what facilities are available for certain communities in certain areas.
2: Right. Well, exactly, and um, you know, the the, the fundamental um, project of apartheid was to separate people, to to give them their own uh, group areas, as it was called, it was a particularly noxious term. Everyone should live in their own place, go to their own schools by race, um, and that was built into into the city. So the former townships are generally quite far from the old inner city. Um, and it's one of the big challenges of the post-apartheid years has been trying to make a more coherent, more unified city out of a place that was fragmented.
3: And do you feel there's a responsibility for you and other writers and poets and storytellers from the city of Johannesburg to tell that story tell the story of inequalities, tell the story of opportunities and challenges and paint, I suppose, um, a more uh, varied and possibly more complex portrait of the city?
2: Um, I wouldn't say responsibility. I mean, having lived through uh, periods in which writers were told what to do and in which uh, writers' politics became the most important thing about their work as people evaluated their work, I'm always reluctant to say that writers should do anything or that artists should feel compelled to do anything. But I can certainly speak about my own preferences. And I'm certainly um, the kind of writer who likes to engage with the social and the political. I like to engage with the world around me. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm a writer with a strong sense of place. And I, and I enjoy that engagement. And, and in, in this society... If you engage with the world around you, the everyday world, you of necessity engage with those big questions of inequality and race and so on.
3: Can we talk about your book, um, Portrait with Keys? It's a very interesting um, story of a city and some of the social and um, I suppose cultural challenges facing those living um, um, in the city. I wouldn't describe it as a, uh, that you're selling the city, but it makes for a very enriching read.
2: Well, the, the book was written... Um, in this period I was talking about earlier, the period of of immense sort of social ferment and change. So I began working on it in the the mid-90s, just a few years after the democratic transition. And it started out as a book, a kind of documentary writing that I was doing in my own neighborhood. And my reasoning at the time was that uh, it was very difficult to get a handle on the very large, social and political changes, Mm -hmm. to get a perspective on them. It felt like the society was remaking itself, but it was difficult to understand what that was about. It was difficult to understand what that was about and where it was leading. And I began writing more or less intuitively about what was happening in my own neighborhood. And that shaped the whole form of the book. So it's a kind of fragmentary, um, impressionistic uh, Book made up of short texts which try to understand the, the the local change and and read that as an index of larger social changes.
3: And how safe a city is Johannesburg today? Like I've been walking around, and um, it's daylight, and uh, and so on. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of people either walking around the city, cycling around the city, mm. and it seems very much that everyone's you know safe in their cars taking certain types of transport and going from A to B and really thinking out it going from A to B. Is that fair to say? Um,
2: you know, it's difficult to generalise about Johannesburg. So I think that's, that's true of quite large parts of the city, that this has become a driving city. Uh, the suburbs were always a bit like that anyway, that, that um, people tended to drive rather than walk. And I think people do, they feel safe in their cars. Um, this is not a place you cycle in easily because it's just not safe on the roads. But on the other hand, if you go just, you know, a few miles from here, if you go to Hillbrow, or you go to downtown Johannesburg, the streets will be very, very full of people. Yeah. And so I think it, it varies depending on where you are. In the, the poorer areas, there tends to be a lot more street life. People are out as they always are in high-density parts of cities where they live in small flats and so on. They're on the streets, and and that of course makes places safer in a in a certain way. Whereas in the suburbs, if you drive around the northern suburbs of Johannesburg at night, and I'm talking about ten o'clock at night, not 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 the early hours of the morning, you might well think that an epidemic has swept through and everyone is gone. <laughs> it is so quiet and yeah. so deserted, and that ironically makes the place less safe. For anyone who is out and about in those empty streets, it's it's even less safe than it would otherwise be.
3: One of um, the themes that's run through two of your books that I read was on the idea of getting lost Mm -hmm. in a city. And finding yourself in this strange sort of space and then trying to creatively work back and figure it all out. Mm -hmm. And there's a poetry to that and there's a beauty to that when you're in a city and you do get lost. Because in one way you feel dreadfully insecure and lost. But it also presents a very creative, resourceful opportunity to find your way home. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to me a bit about that?
2: Yes, I think that experience of the city is quite that 's quite central to what I certainly love about being in urban spaces is that there 's the possibility for getting lost um, that cities are big enough and and complex enough for you to wander around in them and be anonymous and be free to choose your own path um, and and then within that, you have the possibility of random things happening right and that's I think that 's very much. That's a wonderful thing about city life. What I love doing when I first arrive in a city is just, you know, dumping the bag in the hotel room and then just going out and walking around with no plan, mm-hmm. and just getting a sense before you begin to figure out what's what. Before people start telling you, you know, the good areas and the bad and the and the, the, the places you should be going, it's that that first encounter with a place where you don't really know and you can you just wander around. That's often so exciting. Mm-hmm. But of course, you, that's not something you would advise someone to do in Johannesburg. So there are cities on earth where you you can literally arrive and an hour later be walking around with no clue about where you are, where you're going, and feel absolutely fine. But this place is not one of them. So, and that's I think it, that's actually makes me quite sad to tell the truth that that uh, people's experience of the city tends to be quite constrained, and it's limited by. Having the right guides to show you around, or knowing where you can go and where you can't, and and uh, I think that's it's a tremendous um, pity that we live in a place that um, that people can't feel safe in, can't feel safe to get lost in.
3: And what's your hope for the city then? Because clearly the city uh, has a lot of challenges, both socially and political, but on a basic kind of urban uh, level, you've got issues with water, huge problems with sanitation, and big housing challenges and housing shortages. Mm. So um, where do you see the city in 20 to 30 years? I
2: wish I knew the answer to that question. Um, I honestly don't know. I think um, this is a place that also confuses you. You can feel dejected and elated in the same day because things seem to be getting worse and getting better at the same time. So I think it's very hard to tell. I guess for me, it's important not to think of Johannesburg or South Africa as extremely exceptional. We have particular problems, but we're also part of the world. And the larger picture is a picture of a crisis of authority in many countries around political leadership and a crisis of faith in democracy And there's a a larger global picture of an environment crisis. And, you know, within those bigger global um, uh, dilemmas, we are grappling with quite fundamental social problems, like how to give people a house, how to make sure that people can feed themselves and their families. So uh, how that plays out, I honestly don't know. I think it's, I think, you know, we live in a kind of entangled world. And I suppose... To some extent, our success will depend on what happens around us and what happens on the rest of the continent. What I can say is that South Africans are resourceful and that the society has stuck together. It's hung together even at points where it felt like it couldn't. And I think there's a well-known phenomenon that we live on the edge, but we never seem to go over it. And so my, my hope is that we – not that that continues indefinitely, but that, that, that we're able to do what needs to be done – to create a better society for everyone before we tip over the point of no return.
3: And that was South African writer, novelist and teacher Ivan Vladislavich portrait with keys the city of johannesburg unlocked is published by ww norton and company so how are south african writers and activists promoting a culture of reading in the country and how safe is the city of johannesburg for women next up it's south african broadcaster journalist and academic karabokoling
1: my name is karabokoling i'm a recovering literary journalist, <laughs> and I'm passionate about social justice work. So I'm a researcher and a writer and a reviewer.
3: Carbo, can you describe the literary landscape of Johannesburg and how important are books within in that?
1: Well, in Johannesburg, it's, it's, it's a polarised city. Um, it's also incredibly diverse. So the literary landscape is, it, it kind of reflects that. Um, Johannesburg is a city that wasn't meant to have a future. It was just supposed to be a mining town. It was, you know, miners arrived, they found the gold, and they were just going to take the gold and leave. They didn't plan the city. You know, so it's one of the only major cities in the world that's not built on a water source, right? So our rivers are literally gold. (laughs) And a lot of our stories um, in our literature reflect that. And a lot of our stories also reflect the issues that we face as a society. You know, issues to deal with racism, uh, domestic violence. Um, A a lot of stuff is, it can be a little bit depressing, but then there are also stories about hope. There's also a lot of joy and laughter. There's music and there's jazz. You know, and um, there is there's also a youth culture that is starting to develop in the literary spaces. There are new young voices coming out. So now it's multi generational, and it's, it's become a lot more inclusive and diverse in terms of the stories and who they represent. Before the publishing uh, landscape and the literary landscape was very Eurocentric. Black voices were marginalised, so the black experience wasn't validated. Uh, but now that has changed over time with with a lot of young black people. Um, and even older black people, you know, started to tell their stories. Um, so there's, there's, there's a beautiful diversity of, of, of voices and of stories. And I think that reflects the city.
3: You're bringing out an e-book with the uh, University of Edinburgh and um, you're looking at issues around migration. Can you talk to me about the, um, I suppose, the challenges within immigrant groups living both in Johannesburg and all across South Africa? Because you have large populations from Zimbabwe, Malawi, Mozambique, Angola and all your neighbouring countries. Yes, well
1: Johannesburg is a migrant town right so until until maybe fifty years ago um most people would not even now most people wouldn't say, wouldn't say their roots are here, and you can see in December everybody disappears it, be, it becomes a ghost town <laughs> it, it's bizarre because you've seen how busy it is, but every everyone is from somewhere else here you know um but you know life in the margins you know uh, in in terms of migrants um Historically with the mines, uh, uh, miners came from Zimbabwe and from Malawi and from Mozambique, not that much from Botswana. Um, and some a little bit from Namibia, and then since um, since the dawn of democracy and our borders opening up, and increasing instability on the continent, um, Johannesburg in South Africa is is seen as this you know this land of milk and honey you know, and we 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 have a good story to tell you know our bloodless transition into democracy Mandela, and the opportunities the infrastructure that we have the media that we have the fact that we can criticize our government openly and not get jailed, you know so a lot of people have had to flee war. And, um, you know, e- economic strife in their, in their countries. And Johannesburg is the first place. It's the first place to go. And so the book that um, the African Center for Migration and Society at, at WITS, um, together with um, uh, the University of Edinburgh, have they, they're concluding this three-year project called Security at the Margins. And they look at the life of precarity that migrants live on the margins of Johannesburg, specifically undocumented migrants, mostly women who have fled wars, um, sex workers, and um, artisanal miners, because some of the old gold mines have shut down. So people have found opportunity in actually going and digging out whatever gold is still there, because the mines are old. And there's a whole grey economy and a grey culture around that. So um, it's a a group of researchers at Edinburgh and at WITS who have conducted research and are telling stories about the existence of migrants, but using arts-based research methodologies, which is something that I'm passionate about because I love storytelling. So now, the the beauty with this particular project is that um, the participants in the researchers who are migrants themselves, they're the ones who tell their stories. You know, they do body work, they do you know they sew quilts, they they take pictures. You know, so they 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 they're becoming the producers of the knowledge, and again, it's so that people can learn to have
3: empathy because now you're using the arts to tell something which is a difficult story. Thabo, you said something very interesting to me earlier. You said, you know, being um, a woman uh, living in Johannesburg is a bit of an extreme sport. And I laughed my head off and uh, thought that was hilarious. But, um, you know, clearly security is a big problem. In uh, Johannesburg, and you know the risk of violence. So, can you talk to me about that?
1: Being an African woman is an extreme sport, and then when you live in a city like Johannesburg, and in a country like South Africa, where the culture of violence against women is incredibly high, you know, I don't want to be—I don't want to be Afro-pessimistic, but I have to tell the truth, you know. And I tend to live with hope rather than despair. But just to give you the statistics: fifty-two percent of women who are murdered in South Africa are murdered by their intimate partners. Okay, so our, our rates of gender-based violence are really, really really high. Um, I, I lost my own sister to domestic violence you know i, I don 't know anyone who hasn't been touched by it i 'm a survivor of domestic violence myself so there's that that you know we 're not safe in our own homes but we 're also not safe in public spaces because of patriarchal attitudes and violent attitudes towards women and and, and I think this is something that women throughout the world experience so um that's that 's how it is but we, we 've created safe spaces for ourselves where we decide to take ownership and one of my favorite South African musicians Tandy Swamazwai she she was so amazing for her for her 40th or 42nd birthday she decided to have a concert I mean she's a huge star you know across the continent and
3: no men were allowed at the concert that's a very brave move and um, and also a very creative move isn't it Mm
1: -hmm. It was like yeah. we, we are scared of you, we don 't feel safe around you, please, so we, we create these sort of women only spaces um, just so that we can be safe, but then you also find allies you know and, and, and the men who, do, who who try and do the work as mm-hmm. well yeah. you know um, it 's a journey, young people are taking it on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're learning lessons from, from older generations. Our mothers are starting to tell us the stories of their traumas. So we see that it's a societal thing. And, you know, it's, and, 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 and it cuts across races and cultures and class in South Africa. You can't say it's a white thing or a black yeah. thing or a Tswana thing or a Zulu thing or a tribal thing. It's, it's actually, it's, it's a pervasive toxic masculinity patriarchal culture but we are doing something about it and one of the things that I love about being in Johannesburg is that it's a place of ambitious people we've come here to change the world not just to change yeah. our lives
3: last question for you and I'm going to put you on the spot here um, you have uh, spent a lifetime reviewing books you've presented your own radio show and you've been very much enmeshed in um, South African culture and literature if there were three books that any Irish person should read about South Africa, and particularly Johannesburg, who would those writers be, and what would be the names of those books?
1: Wow, that is, that is a crazy question, <laughs> because, I mean, in the course of my career, I made an estimate that I counted the books that I have in my personal library, and they number at just over 2,000, so <laughs> and it's mostly South African literature. But I would say, um, to cut across the board, I can tell you one of my current favourites is Mokhale Mashilo, and uh, she wrote a book called *The Intruders*. It's a collection of short stories, and she incorporates magical realism. And it's stories mostly about young girls who live who live on the margins of society. They live in the townships, um, but one discovers um, she, you know, she grew up in Soweto, and she discovers when she's in her late teens uh, they go to the seaside, and it turns out that she's a mermaid. And she drowns her boyfriend. And then her grandmother tells her, we're mere people, you know. And then, um, whom else? I would have to say Professor Pumla Gola. She's doing amazing work. Uh, I would like to... Her book is called Reflecting Rogue. So it's her thoughts on being a black feminist in South Africa and South African society and, and how she reflects on that. And then a third person that I would say you have to read would be everything that has ever been written by Professor Zakes Mda. Because he, he does South African history, he, he does, you know, historical fiction. With the, with the magic and, and the you know, African cosmology, but then he also writes really contemporary stuff, and then he also wrote his, his memoirs about his life growing up with abuse and all of that, and he's currently a professor in the U.S. So I'd say everything that Zexmda has ever written, Professor Pumla Gola and Mohale Mashiolo, who's coming up. I mean, she's, she's a young writer, and she also writes uh, graphic novels. So, yeah, those are the ones.
3: And that was South African broadcaster, journalist and academic, Karabo Colling Well, that's it from Johannesburg for this evening. I hope you enjoyed the show. OK, all that's left for me to do now is to say thank you for listening and a big shout out to the Simon Cumbers Media Fund and to Irish Aid, who supported my journalism trip to South Africa. Now we'll be hearing more from South Africa and the enormity of the urban sustainability challenge facing Africa on the documentary and drama on News Talk in the coming months. Thanks for listening. Good night.
0: O Samoa, 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 O Morena Bolonga se si chava sa Gesù, un felice dentro ma sue oh. Morena Bolonga se chava sa Gesù, un felice dentro le ma sue gio. O se Bologna, o se o se o such a massa, yes, so, a massa, Africa. Ago benjalo, a go benjalo, cuz ego bengu na pagaje, cuz ego bengu na pagaje.